5. Laudable anxiety for our success, has communicated the following pathetic story, as a specimen of stenotypography, or compositor's shorthand, we consider it unique, S-E-R-A-P-H-I-N-A-P-O-P-P-S, O-R, the beauty of Bloomsbury, Seraphina Pops was the daughter of Mr. Hezekiah Pops, a highly respectable pawnbroker, residing in Street, Bloomsbury, being an only child, from her earliest infancy she wanted for a zero, as everything had been made ready to her symbol, hand-hand, she grew up as most little girls do, who live long enough, and became the universal, of all who knew her, for, none but herself could be her, amongst the most devoted of her admirers was Julian Phipps or Fandale, Seraphina was not insensible to the worth of Julian Phipps or Fandale, and when she received from him a letter, asking permission to visit her, she felt some difficulty in replying to his, for, that this very critical, and an amiable young man, named Augustus Street Tompkins, who possessed considerable LSD had become a sweeter for her symbol, hand, she loved Phipps or Fandale Street Tompkins, but the former was symbol, empty of money, and Seraphina, though sensitive to an extreme, was fully aware that a competence and was a very comfortable, appendix, she seized her pen, but found that her mind was all six single quote s and seven single quote s, she spelt Phipps or Fandale, P-H-I-T-Z, and though she commenced after, she never could come to a, finish, she upbraided her unlucky, either for making Phipps or Fandale so poor, or St. Tompkins so ugly, which he really was, in this dilemma we must leave her at present, although Augustus Street Tompkins was a symbol, Freemason, he did not possess the universal benevolence which that ancient order inculcates, but revolving in his mind the probable reasons for Seraphina's hesitation, he came to this conclusion, she either loved him somebody else, or she did not love him at all, this conviction only acts his worst feelings, and he resolved that no symbol, scruple scruple of conscience should stand between him and his desires, on the following day, Phipps or Fandale had invited Seraphina to a picnic party, he had opened the and placed some boiled beef and on the verdant grass, when Seraphina exclaimed, in the mildest grave accent grave accent, I like it well done, Phipps or Fandale, as Julian proceeded to supply his beloved one with the seconds of the provender, St. Tompkins stood before them with a symbol, dagger in his symbol, hand, want of space compels us to leave the conclusion of this interesting romance to the imagination of the reader, and to those ingenious playwrights who so liberally supply our most popular authors with gratuitous catastrophes, notes by the flyboy, 1, admiration, 2, parallel, 3, note of interrogation, 4, period, 5, more than, 6, paragraph, 7, Freemason, 8, less than, 9, multiplied, 10, scruples, 11, hampers and, 12, carrots, 13, accents, 14, section, 15, dagger, news of extraordinary interest, a mechanic in Berlin has invented a balance of extremely delicate construction, Sir Robert Peel, it is said, intends to avail himself of the invention, to keep his political principles so nicely balanced between Whig and Tory, that the most accurate observer shall be unable to tell which way they tend, the London Fire Brigade have received directions to hold themselves in readiness at the meeting of Parliament, to extinguish any conflagration that may take place, from the amazing quantity of inflammatory speeches and political fireworks that will be let off by the performers on both sides of the house, the following extraordinary inducement was held out by a solicitor, who advertised last week in a morning paper, 
For an office clerk, a small salary will be given, but he will have enough of overwork to make up for the deficiency, more ways than one, and see. The incomplete state of the treasury has been frequently lamented by all lovers of good taste. We are happy to announce that a tablet is about to be placed in the front of the building, with the following inscription, Treasury, finished by the Whigs, A-N-N-O-D-O-M, N-D-C-C-C-X-L-I, a con, by Tom Cook. Why is the common chord in music like a portion of the Mediterranean? Because it's the E-G-N-C-A-G-N-C, Monsieur J-U-L-L-I-N, 1, crash, 2, clash. 3, dash, 4, smash, diminuendo, now crescendo, thus play the furious band, led by the kid-gloved hand of giant that Napoleon of quadrille, of Piccolonian's shrillest of the shrill, perspiring raver over a semi-quaver, who tunes his pipes so well, he'll tell you that the natural key of Johnny Bull's a flat, demon of discord, with mustaches cloven arch-impudent improver of Beethoven Trixie professor of charlatan re-inventor of musical artillery barbarous rain and thunder maker unconscionable money taker traveling about both near and far, told to exact at every bar what brings thee here again, to desecrate old Drury's fame, egregious attitude neither, Annick Pfeiffer, comes to advise her against intellect and sense to close her walls, to erase her benches, that Gallic winches might play their brazen ennics at masked balls, Side even waiter of a quarant traitor. Why did you leave your stupans and meat oven? To make a fricassee of the great Beethoven, and whilst your piccolos unceasing squeak on, sockily serve Mozart with sauce piquant, mawkishly cast your eyes to the cerulean turn Matthew Locke to potage Julian. Go, go, sir, do, back to the room, where lately you waked upon each hungry feeder, playing the garçon, not the leader. Pray, put your hat on. Coupes voter baton, Bavier, CLAR de kitchen. It is now pretty well understood that if the Tories come into office, there will be a regular turnout of the present royal household. Her Majesty, through the gracious condescension of the new powers, will be permitted to retain her situation in the royal establishment, but on the express condition that there shall be a party of meddlers. A subscription has been opened for a medal to commemorate the return of Lord John Russell for the City of London. We would suggest that his speech to the citizens against the Corn Laws would form an appropriate inscription for the face of the medal, while that to the Huntingdonshire farmers in favor of them would be found just the thing for the reverse. A chapter on boots. Boots? Boots? Yes. Boots. We can write upon boots, we can moralize upon boots, we can convert them. As shot does the weeping stagon, as you like it. Or, whether you like it or not. Into a thousand similes. First. For but, our souls in arms and eager for the fray. And so we will at once head our dissertation as we would a warrior's host with Wellingtons. These are the most judicious species of manufactured calfskin, like their great, godfather. They are perfect as a whole, from the binding at the top to the finish at the toe. There is a beautiful unity about their well-conceived proportions, kindly considerate of the calf, amiably inclined to the instep, and devotedly serviceable to the whole foot. They shed their protecting influence over all day in case. They are walked about in not only as protectors of the feet, but of the honor of the wearer. Quarrel with a man if you like. Let your passion get its steam up even to blood heat. Be magnificent while glancing at your adversary's brutus. Grand as you survey his chin. Heroic at the last button of his waistcoat, And appeased at the very knees of his superior cursy continuations. Inexorable at the commencement of his straps. And about to become abusive at his shoe ties. 
the first cooler of your wrath will be the hobby-like arched instep of his genuine Wellingtons, which, even as a drop of oil upon the troubled ocean, will extend itself over the heretofore ruffled surface of your temper. Now for bluchers, well, we don't like them. They are shocking impostors walking discomforts. They had no right to be made at all, or, if made, twas a sin for them to be so christened our bluchers Christians. They are Wellingtons cut down, so, in point of genius, was their baptismal sponsor, but these are vilely tied, and that the hardy old Prussian would never have been while body and soul held together. He was no beauty, but these are decidedly ugly commodities, chiefly tenant by swell purveyors of cat's meat, and pearly looking prize fighters. They had the fortiter in ray for kicking, but not the suaviter in moto for corns. Look at them villanously treed out at the Noah's Ark and elsewhere, what are they but eight and six penny worth of discomfort? They will no more accommodate a decent foot than the old general would have turned his back in a charge, or cut off his grizzled mustaches. If it wasn't for the look of the thing, one might as well shove one's foot into a box iron. We wouldn't be the man that christened them, and take a trifle to meet the fighting old marshal, even in a world of peace. In short, they are ambulating humbugs, and the would-be respectables that wear em are a huge fraternity of false pretenders. Don't trust em, reader, they are sure to do you. There's deceit in their straps, prevarication in their trousers, and connivance in their distended braces. We never met but one exception to the above rule it was John Smith. Every reader has a friend of the name of John Smith in confidence. That is the man. We would have sworn by him, in fact. We did swear by him. For ten long years he was our oracle. Never shall we forget the first. The only time our faith was shaken. We gazed upon and loved his honest face. We reciprocated the firm pressure of his manly grasp. Our eyes descended in admiration even onto the ground on which he stood. And there. Upon that very ground the ground whose upward growth of five feet eight seemed heaven's boast. An honest man, we saw what struck us sightless to all else a pair of bluchers. We did not dream his feet were in them, ten years probation seemed to vanish at the sight. We wept. He spoke could we believe our ears. Marvel of marvels. Despite the propinquity of the bluchers, despite their widespreading contamination, his voice was unaltered. We were puzzled. We were like the first for a right one, he has a leg, or, a leg has him, I eat nowhere, John Smith coughed, not healthily, as of your, it was a hollow emanation from hypocritical lungs, he sneezed, it was a vile imitation of his original, hi catch you, he invited us to dinner, suggested the best cut of a glorious haunch we had always had it in the days of the Wellingtons now our imagination conjured up cold plates, tough mud. Gravy thick enough in Greece to save the Humane Society the trouble of admonitory advertisements as to the danger of reckless young gentlemen skating thereon, and a total absence of sweet sauce and currant jelly. We paused we grieved John Smith saw inquired the cause we felt for him, but determined, with Spartan fortitude, to speak the truth. Our native modesty and bursting heart caused our drooping eyes once more to scan the ground, and, next to the ground, the wretched bluchers. Joy of joys, we saw them all, I, all, all from the seam in the sides to the leech like fat cotton ties, we counted the six lace holes, we examined the texture of the stockings above, curious three thread, we gloated over the trousers and contaminated by straps, we hugged ourselves in the contemplation of the naked truth, John Smith our own John Smith your John Smith everybody's John Smith again entered the armchair of our affections, the fire of our love stirred, like a self-acting poker, 
the embers of cooling good fellowship, and the strong blaze of resuscitated friendship burst forth with all its pristine warmth. John Smith wore bluchers but he wore them like an honest man, and he was the only specimen of the genus homo who sported trousers that was above the weakness of tugging up his suspenders and stretching his broadcloth for the contemptible purpose of giving a fictitious, Wellingtonian appearance to his eight and six pennies, ample jacks, to indulge in the sporting phraseology of the racing calendar, appear to be got by high lows out of bluchers, they thrive chiefly in the neighborhoods of Houndstitch, Whitechapel, and Billingsgate. They attach themselves principally to butchers' boys, Israelitish disposers of dicks and pineals, and itinerant misnomers of livefish. On their first introduction to their masters, by prigging or purchase, they represent some of the glories of Day and Martin, but, strange to say, though little skilled in the penman's art, their various owners appear to be imbued with extraordinary veneration for the wholesome advice contained in the round text copy, wherein youths are admonished to avoid useless repetition. Hence that polishes the alpha and omega of their shining days. Their term of servitude varies from three to six weeks. During the first they are fastened to the topmost of their ten holes. The next fortnight, owing to the breaking of the lace, and its frequent nodding, they are shorn of half their glories. And upon the total destruction of the fong a thing never replaced. It appears a matter of courtesy on their parts to remain on that hall. On some occasions various of their wearers have transferred them as a legacy to very considerable mobs, without particularly stating for which especial individual they were intended. This kicking off their shoes, because they wouldn't die in them, has generally proved but a sorry method of lengthening existence. Hessians, are little more than ambitious Wellingtons, curved at the top wrinkled at the bottom showing symptoms of superannuation even in their infancy, and beta-celled in the front. Offering what a Wellington never did a weak point for an enemy to seize and shake at his pleasure. There's no speculation in them they are entirely superficial, like a shallow fellow. You at once see through, and know all about them. There is no mystery as to the height they reach, how far they are polished, or the description of leg they cling round. Save Count Drani. We never saw a calf in a pair of them that island we never saw a leg with a calf. Their general tenants are speculative jocose men who have bought them, Vorth the Monish, that tenth hand, seedy chamber council, or still more seedy collectors of rents. They are fast falling into decay, like dogs. They have had their, day and Martin's, acts, but both are past. But what? Ho! Oh, tops! 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 Derby! Epsom! Ledger! Spring summer! Autumn meetings miles! Half miles to YC hurdles! Heats! Names, weights, colors of the riders' jockeys, jackets, dead heat sweats distances training scales caps, and all what would you be without top boots? What? And echo answers nothing. I, worse than nothing a chancery suit without money an old daily culprit without an alibi a debtor without an excuse a new play without a titled offer a manager without impudence a thief without a character a lawyer without a wig or a guy so without matches. Tops. You must be made to measure. Wellingtons, Hessians, Bluchers, Ankle Jacks, and High Lows, can be chosen from, fitted, and tried on, but you must be measured for, lasted, backstrapped, topped, wrinkled and bottomed, according to order, so it is with your proprietors the little men who ride the great running horses, there's an impenetrable mystery about those little men they are, we know that, but we know not how, Bill Scott is in the secret, Shifney is well aware of a John Day could enlighten the world but they won't, they know the value of being light characters, their fame is as a feather, and downy are they.
even as the illustration of that fame, they conspire together like so many little Frankensteins. The world is treated with a very small proportion of very small jockeys, they never increase beyond a certain number, which proves they are not born in the regular way, as the old ones drop off. The young ones just fill their places, and not one do spare. Whoever heard of a mob of jockeys, a glut of light weights, or even a handful of feathers? No one. It's like Freemasonry it's an awful mystery. Bill Scott knows all about the one, and the Duke of Sussex knows all about the other, but the uninitiated know nothing of either. Jockeys are wonders so are their boots. Crickets have as much calf, grasshoppers as much ostensible thigh, and yet these superhuman specimens of manufactured leather fit like a glove, and never pull the little gentleman's legs off. That's the extraordinary part of it, they never even so much as dislocate a joint. Jockey bootmakers are wonderful men. Jockeys ain't men at all. Look, look, look. Oh, dear. Do you see that little fellow? With his merry thought-like looking legs. Clinging round that gallant bright chestnut. Thrill bird. And sticking to his ribs as if he meant to crimp him for the dinner of some German curious in horse flesh. There he island screwing his sharp knees into the saddle. Sitting well up from his loins. Stretching his neck. Curving his back. Stiffening the wire-like muscles of his small arms, and holding in the noble brute he strides, as a soft valve controls the foaming steam, only loosing him at his very pleasure. Look, look, there's the grey filly, with the other maid to measure feather on her back, do you notice how she has crawled up to the chestnut? Mark, mark, his arms appear to be India rubber, mercy on us, how they stretch, and the bridle, which looked just now like a solid bar of wrought iron begins to curve, see how gently he leans over the filly's neck, while the chestnut's rider turns his eyes, like a boiled lobster, almost to the back of his head, oh, he's awake, he still keeps the lead, but the grey filly is nothing but a good un, now, the top boots riding her have become excited, and commence tickling her sides with their flashing silver spurs, putting an extra foot into every bound, she gains upon the chestnut, this is something like a race, the distance post is reached. The top boots on the gray are at work again. Bravo. The tip of the white nose is beyond the level of the opposing boots. Ten strides. And no change. She must win. Moonbury she can't. Gray forever. Chestnut for a hundred. Done. Done. Magnificent. Neck and neck. Splendid. Anybody's race. Bravo gray. Bravo chestnut. Bravo both. Ten yards will settle it. The chestnut rider throws up his arms a slight dash of blood soils the day and Martin and earth disdaining bound lands chestnut a winner of three thousand guineas, and all the world are in raptures with the judgment displayed in the last kick of the little man's top boots. F.U.S.B.O.S. Hints on a melodramatic music. It has often struck us forcibly that the science of melodramatic music has been hitherto very imperfectly understood amongst us. The art of making the sound an echo of the sense of expressing my orchestral effects, the business of the drama, and of forming a chromatic commentary to the emotions of the soul and the motions of the body, has been shamefully neglected on the English stage. Ignorant composers and ignoble fiddlers had attempted to develop the dark mysteries and intricate horrors of the melodrama, but unable to cope with the grandeur of their subject, they have been betrayed into the grossest absurdities. What, for instance, could be more preposterous than to assign the same music for storming a fort? and, stabbing a virtuous father, equally ridiculous would it be to express, the breaking of the sun through a fog, and, a breach of promise of marriage, 
or the rising of a ghost, and the entrance of a lady's maid, in the same keys, the adaptation of the different instruments in the orchestra to the circumstance of the drama, is also a matter of extreme importance. How often has the effect of a highly interesting suicide been destroyed by an injudicious use of the trombone, and a scene of domestic distress been rendered ludicrous by the intervention of the double drum? If our musical composers would attend more closely than they have been in the habit of doing, to the minutiae of the scene which is entrusted to them to illustrate, and study the delicate lights and shades of human nature, as we behold it nightly on the Surrey stage, we might confidently hope, that no very distant period, to see melodrama take the lofty position it deserves in the histrionic literature of this country, we feel that there is a wide field here laid open for the exercise of British talent, and had therefore, made a few desultory mems, on the subject, which we subjoin, intended as modest hints for the guidance of composers of melodramatic music, the situations we have selected from the most popular melos, of the day, the music to be employed in each instance. We have endeavored to describe in such a manner as to render it intelligible to all our readers. Music for the entrance of a brigand in the dark, should be slow and mysterious, with an effective double bass in it. Ditto, for taking wine and allegro, movement, with D.A. Capo for the second glass. Ditto, for taking porter, beer, or any other inferior swipes a similar movement, but not conspirito. Ditto, for the entrance of an attorney at Coda in one sharp, six eight time. If accompanied by a client, an accidental flat may be introduced. Ditto. For discovering a lost babia simply affetuoso strain. In a minor key. Ditto. For recognizing a disguised count a flourish of trumpets. And three bars rest. To allow time for the countess to faint in his arms. Ditto. For concealing a lover in a closet. And the sudden appearance of the father, guardian, or husband. As the case may be a prestissimo movement. With an agitated cadenza. Ditto. For taking an O4 affidavit slow, solemn music, with a marked emphasis when the deponent kisses the book, ditto, for a lover's vow tender, broken adagio, ditto, for kicking a low comedy man a brisk rapid staccato passage, with a running accompaniment on the kettle drums, the examples we have given above will sufficiently explain our views, but there are a vast number of dramatic situations that we have not noticed, which might be expressed by harmonious sounds such as music for the appearance of a dun or a devil music for paying a tailor music for serving a writ music for an affectionate embrace music for ditto very warm music for feigning music for coming to music for the death of a villain with a confession of bigamy and many others too numerous to mention but we trust from what we have said that the subject will not be lost sight of by those interested in the elevation of our national drama the rising sun the residence of Sir Robert Peel has been so besieged of late by place hunters, that it has been aptly termed the new post office, the punch correspondence. In presenting the following epistle to my readers, it may be necessary to apprise them, that it is the genuine production of my eldest daughter, Julia, who has lately obtained the situation of ladies made in the house of Mr. Samuel Briggs, an independent wax and tallow chandler, of Fenchurch Street, City, but who keeps his family away from business in fashionable style, in Russell Square, Bloomsbury, the example of many of our most successful literary chiffoniers, who had not thought it disgraceful to publish scraps of private history and inedited scandal, picked up by them in the houses to which they happened to be admitted, will, it is presumed, sufficiently justify my daughter in communicating, for the amusement of an enlightened public, and the benefit of an affectionate parent, 
a few circumstances connected with Briggs family, with such observations and reflections of her own as would naturally suggest themselves to a refined and intelligent mind, should this first essay of a timid girl in the thorny path of literature be favorably received by my friends and patrons, it will stimulate her to fresh exertions, and, I fondly hope, may be the means of placing her name in the same rank by those of Lady Morgan, Madame Tussaud, Mrs. Glassay, the Invisible Lady, and other national ornaments of the feminine species. Punch, Russell Square, July 14th, dear P.A., I knows you will he and choose to hear how I get on since I left the wing of the best of feathers. I am happy to say I am here in a very respectable family, where they keeps two tall footmen to my hand, one of them is called John, and the other Petoff. The latter is as vain as a peacock of his legs, which is really beautiful, and perfectly straight though the house capper southeast he has bad angles, but some people who at things with only one eye and see but their defects. Mr. Wheezy is the asthmatic butler and coachman, who has lately lost his heir, and can't get no more, which is very difficult after a certain age, even with the help of Roland's Madagascar Isle. Mrs. Tuffney, the housekeeper, is a proud and oystier sort of person. I rather suspects that she's jealous of me and Petoff, who has been throwing ship's eyes at me. She thinks to look down on me, but she can't, for I hold myself up, and though we breakfasts and teas at the same board, I treat with a deal of hot tar, and choose her how much I despises her supercilious conduct. Besides these individuals, there's another don't stick, which I wish to mention particular which is the page A. Theodore, that, as the poet says, as being contrived a double debt to pay, a page at night a tigger all the day, in the morning he's a tigger, dearest in a tight frock coat, top boots, buckskin small clothes, and stuck up behind Master Augustus's cab, in the heavening he gives up the tigger, and comes out as the page in a fancy jacket, with two rows of gilt buttings, which makes him the perfect image of Mr. Whittycomb, that I see in the circle at Hashley's Amphitheatre. The page's bicyness is to await on the ladies, which is naturally light work, and being such a small chap, you may suppose they can never make enough of him. These are all the upper servants. Of course, I shan't lower myself by noticing the inferior crackers, such as the housemaid, coke, etc. But shall purse directly to the other portion of the family, beginning with the old Duffner as Petoff calls him, who has no idea of my life, and, like one of his own taller lights, has only dipped into good society. Next comes Mrs., in fact, I ought to have put her first, for the gray mare is the best boss in our stable. Excuse the wolf narration. After Mrs., I give precedence to Mr. Augustus, who, being the only son in the house, is naturally looked up to by everybody in it. He has been brought up a perfect gentleman, at Oxford, and is constantly fond of spending his nights in Ultra de Charbon and afterwards obscuring the streets twisting double knockers, pulling singly bells, and indulging in other fashionable divertions, to which the low-minded polyace, and the setine magistrates had strong objections. His pa allows him only six hundred a year, which isn't above one to enough to keep a cab, a couple of hosses, and other things, which it's not necessary to allude to here. Isn't it odious to curb so fine a spirit? I wish you see him. Pa, such eyes and such a pair of beautiful black mosquitoes on his lip enough to turn the heads of all the women he meets. The other membranes of this family are the three daughters Miss Sophia, Miss Salina, and Miss Georgina, which are all young ladies, full-grown, and goes in public characters to the Caledonian balls, 
and is likewise anxious to get off hands as soon as a favorable opportunity offers. It's believed the old Duffner can give them ten thousand pounds apiece, which of course will have great weight with a husband. There's some green stories going law. There's Mrs. Bell. I must run upstairs, so must conclude abruptly, but hope to resolve my pen next week. Believe me, my dear Pond, your affection Julia Punch. Characteristic correspondence. The following notes actually pass aid between two now celebrated comedians. Dear Jay, send me a shilling. Yours. BPS. On second thoughts. Make it two. To which his friend replied Dear B I have but one shilling in the world. Yours. JPS. On second thoughts. I want that for dinner. A young artist in Picayune takes such perfect likenesses. That a lady married the portrait of her lover instead of the original. Punch and peel. Arcades Embo. Reader. God bless us. Mr. Punch. Who is that tall? Fair haired. Somewhat parrot faced gentleman. Smiling like a schoolboy over a mess of treacle. And now kissing the tips of his five fingers as gingerly as if he were doomed to kiss a nail. Punch. That, Mr. Reader, is the great complant, Sir Robert Peel, and at this moment he has, in his own conceit, seized upon the white wonder of Victoria's hand, and is kissing it with St. James's devotion. Reader. What for? Mr. Punch. Punch. What for? At court. Mr. Reader. You always kiss when you obtain an honor. Tea's a very old fashion. Sir old as the court of King David. Well do I recollect what a smack your eye gave to his majesty when he was appointed to the post which made that Sheba widow. Poor Uriah. As we say of the stag. That was when his horns were in the velvet. Reader. You recollect it. Mr. Punch. You at the court of King David. Punch. I Mr. Reader. I. And at every court. From the court of Canaan Mesopotamia to the court of Victoria in this present. Flinty Heart London. Only the true island as I have traveled I have changed my name. Bless you. Half the proverbs given to Solomon are mine. What I have lost by keeping company with kings. Not even Joseph Hume can calculate. Reader. And are you really in court confidence at this moment? Punch. Am I? What? Half single quote and single quote T you heard of the elections? Have you not heard the shouts I'll punch? Doesn't my nose glow like coral or single quote and single quote T my chops radiant as a rainbow half not my hunch gone up at least two inches am I not? From crown to toe nails. Brightened. Sublimated. Like Alexander he was a particular friend of mine. That same Alexander. And therefore stole many of my best sayings I only know that I am morbid.